0: Thanks, Ollie. Morning, everyone. Morning. Uh, We are in John 7 today, and if you've been reading on, as I would encourage you to do from week to week, uh, we're just going through the book of John, so you know what's coming next, Uh, I would encourage you to read on. But if you've been reading on this week, you're probably wondering what on earth is going on in John 7. What on earth is happening here? Well, John 7 comes in 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 a time when there is much confusion about who Jesus is much confusion about who Jesus is. And ultimately what we see here in John 7 is the question is posed, and it's, it's life's big question. There, there is only one big question in life, really, and that is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Everyone's got to answer that question. Everyone will be held account to the answer to that question. According to John's gospel, our eternal destiny rests, hangs on the answer to that question, who is Jesus? And there's been many over throughout history, there's been many uh, answers to that question, one of which is that Jesus was a liar. He just lied about who he was, he made up who he was, uh, and he gathered some people around him because of that. He was a deceiver. Second is that he was a lunatic. He was self-deceived. He made the whole thing up himself. He just he made this image up, and some people gathered around that. Third view is that Jesus just a legend. Now, I don't mean legend in the same way that we use the word. I mean it as in made-up story. There's maybe some uh, small truth about a man called Jesus, but, but Christians over the years have blown it up out of all proportions. And then there is the fourth answer, of course. The fourth answer, which historic christianity has held to orthodox christianity has held to and this is the view that jesus was and still is lord of all he is god he is the messiah he fulfills old testament prophecy he is the holy one of god he died on a cross for our sins he rose again he ascended to the right hand of the father and someday he will return That's the view that John holds in the the gospel. It is the view of, as I say, orthodox Christianity. That is the conclusion that Christianity has come to. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. And I want to bring us back often as we go through this gospel of John, I want to bring us back to to the purpose of the gospel, which John states in John 20. He says this, but these are written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. John's endeavor in writing the gospel is to answer that very question. Who is Jesus in order that we might believe in him? He is the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we have life. Who is Jesus? What's your answer? As we begin this morning, what is your answer to that question? Who is Jesus? The context here of John 7, you'll see it there at the beginning of John 7. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. What's going on here? Well, the Feast of Booths, uh, we've just come out of John 6, where was the time of Passover, was the setting of the feeding of the 5,000, was the setting of Jesus' discourse on him being the bread of life, and then about six months later comes the Feast of Booth. So essentially what this was, was the equivalent to what we would know as harvest. And so six months, uh, Passover happens in spring. Six months later, they have the Feast of Booth. And it is one of the major fests, one of the major celebrations in the Jewish calendar. And this is what John writes about. So six months have passed here between the end of John 6 and the beginning of John 7. What we have here is this Feast of Booth, uh, one of the most joyful celebrations in the Jewish calendar. It was one, one of these times when it required Jews who would pilgrim from wherever they lived uh, to Jerusalem. And so the crowds in Jerusalem swelled. There was pro- These feast times were when, when, the, when the crowds were at their highest, when most people were in Jerusalem. They were there to celebrate. Celebrating the harvest, the feast of booths, But not only were they doing that, they were were commemorating the wilderness experience as well when when the people of Israel dwelt in booths, tents. And so some would do that around Jerusalem at this time. They would would create and and make these tents uh, and dwell in them for the festival period. Faithful Jews were expected to make this journey. They were expected to make this pilgrimage to Jerusalem. So it's no surprise really when Jesus' brothers come to him and say, let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go up to this feast. Let's go to this celebration. But were they coming with that pure motive of Jesus to be a good Jew, us as good Jews, we need to do this? Were they coming with that motive purely? No, they weren't. They were coming with a a secondary motive, as it were. What had happened in John six was Jesus went from thousands of followers down to, as I said a couple of weeks ago, eleven less enthusiastic less than enthusiastic followers. John 's brothers were concerned that he wasn 't showing himself off enough john 's brothers were concerned that they had lost all of their credibility, all of their following. And so John's brothers were saying to Jesus, Jesus, let's go to Jerusalem because, because there you'll have the crowd, you'll have the people there, and you can perform these things that you were doing, and then we'll build that crowd up again. We'll get this Jesus show back on the road again. We'll get the fame. We'll get the notoriety, and we'll be landed. If you want, to, you want the crowd, this is, this is the time to do it. Show yourself to the world. It reflected their worry that he was losing some of his fo- a lot of his followers, and this tells us Jesus' response then tells us a lot about who Jesus is. Brothers, come. Let's go to Jerusalem. You'll have the biggest crowd you'll ever you'll ever see. You can do your stuff there. Brilliant. We'll get the crowds back. We're on the ball again. And Jesus says, no. I'm not going. Why? Tells us a couple of things. Tells us this. Jesus is not interested in crowds for crowds' sake. Jesus is not interested in crowds for crowds' sake. He is, however, interested in individuals. He is, however, interested in individuals. He's not interested in crowds for crowds' sake, but he is interested in individuals. Crowds don't seem to matter to him. Crowds don't seem to have any attraction for Jesus. He's not in it for the numbers game. Look at what Marcus preached on last week. Jesus sometimes actively seems to discourage people from following him. He says harsh things. What we would deem as harsh things. Think of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says, how must I have eternal life? And Jesus says to him, listen here, big fella, what you're going to have to do is you're going to have to go and sell everything, give it away, and then come follow me. Jesus knows that he's not going to do that. Or he goes away. He can't do it. Jesus is not interested in the crowds for crowd's sake, but he is interested in individuals. If you trace back through John, already we see this: woman at the well. Jesus stops, takes time, engages with the woman at the well. The official son. He heals the official son because he's interested in the individual. The healing at the pool. Remember the man who couldn't make it to the pool before someone else got there. Well, Jesus stops with him and heals him because he's interested in the individual. And the reality is that Jesus has always been interested in the individual. And that is good news for you and I. Because we come in here this morning and we're part of a crowd. And we can we can come in here, and it's good. We know the theology behind why we gather as a church, and it's good to gather as God's people, and we are part of the church, bigger than ourselves, and all all those things are good. But you come in here this morning, and you can be sort of anonymous. Let's just be honest. You can be part of the crowd, and Jesus goes much further than that. Jesus goes to you individually. Because he's interested in you. He's interested in your life. What's going on in your life. All your idiosyncrasies. All the things that make you as crazy as you are. Jesus is interested in that. He's interested in you. As an individual. And that is good news. Because you're not just taken as part of the crowd. What this shows us is Jesus is not interested in the crowd for crowd's sake, but he is interested in the individuals. Second thing that this shows us. There's a crowd in Jerusalem. Massive. Biggest crowd of the year. Second thing this shows us is that a crowd is no indicator of spiritual faithfulness. A crowd is no indicator of spiritual faithfulness and success the reality is folks much of church culture today is built around attracting a crowd get them in have your light show have your smoke and mirrors do whatever you can to make it as attractive as possible so the people will come to church The only problem with that is that Jesus never engaged in that sort of stuff. Never. It's never what he did. Think about this, and and this is the best analogy I think I could come up with this week, so so bear with me. If Jesus' brothers come to him and say, listen, let's go to Jerusalem because the crowd's there. You need the crowd so you can perform your stuff, so you can be seen, blah, blah, blah. Right. Think if Jesus was walking the earth today, what would his brothers come and say to him? His brothers would come and say to him, listen, Jesus, do you even have a Twitter account? You need more followers on Twitter. You need more fake Facebook friends. You need more Instagram followers. You need to build your platform, Jesus. Come on. How How many followers do you have on Instagram? You're not doing a very good job here, Jesus, of showing yourself off. And I think his reply would be the same. I'm not doing it that way. I'm not doing it that way. That is not why I came. Didn't come to be famous. Didn't come for a pat on the back. I came to be faithful to the calling that God has placed on my life. And that is give myself as a ransom. For sinful people. A crowd is no indication of spiritual faithfulness. Lakewood Church, Houston, Texas, largest church in, the, in, in America. Its pastor is Joel Austin. It's not a church. It's not a church. He does not preach the gospel. Crowd is no indication of spiritual faithfulness or success. And we need to be really careful that we don't apply the same metrics that the world applies to faithfulness and success in church life. Because there's a crowd here today. Relative, yes, but a crowd nonetheless. And if we're to base success and faithfulness by people just simply showing up, we are using the wrong metrics. The metrics we should be using are, are you following Jesus? Are you growing into the likeness of the Son? Those are the metrics not just because we have people bums on seats. Jesus isn't interested in a crowd for crowd's sake, but he is interested in the individual. And two, a crowd is no indicator of spiritual success and faithfulness. We're going to see now why Jesus went from thousands of followers to very few. it's a strange statement from Jesus here look at it verse 6 Jesus said to them. so they want him to go he says no Jesus says in verse 6 Jesus said to them my time is not yet come your time is always here the world cannot hate you but it hates me the world hates me Jesus says now again let's trace back through John what has Jesus done for the world so far he has healed the sick He has fed the hungry. He has shown compassion and grace and mercy and kindness. And here he is in John 7 saying that the world hates him. That's a strange statement on any level. Why? How did you come to that conclusion, Jesus? What made you think that? Well, he gives us the answer straight away so we don't have to wait. The answer is in the very same verse. Because I testify about it that its works are evil. Here, in essence, is why Jesus is saying the world hates him. Is this? No one likes to be told they're wrong. No one. Is there anybody in here likes, enjoys, is up for it? But of crack. Go seeking it, to be told that they're wrong. Some people really don't like to be told they're wrong. All right, don't they? You and me are the same. We don't like to be told we're wrong. No one does. And Jesus comes and says, the world hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. What he's saying is, I come and I hold a mirror in front of the world and I say, this is who you are. And your works are evil no one likes that. It makes, it makes us uncomfortable. We're sitting here in here in, in church today. And if I was to come down and, and sit with you for a moment and tell you you're a sinner, and this is how you're a sinner, and this is what you've done to make you a sinner, are we going to like that? Are we going to enjoy that? No, no one likes it. And Jesus comes and, and holds a mirror up and says, this is who you are. He testifies that the world is evil. This is what John Calvin says about this. Listen to these words. We learn from it also that so great is the pride natural to men that they flatter and applaud themselves in their vices. So great is the pride natural to men that they flatter and applaud themselves in their sin. And we know that we live in this world. We know that this happens. We know that when when evil things are held up as these virtuous breakthroughs for humanity, and they're evil. He goes on to say, for they would not kindle into rage rage when they are reproved, were it not that they are blinded by the excessive love of themselves and on that account flatter themselves in their sins. Even among the vices of men, the chief and most dangerous is pride and arrogance. The Holy Spirit alone softens us as to endure reproofs patiently and thus to offer ourselves willingly to be slain by the sword of the church. Folks, you know it to be true. I know it to be true. We live in a culture... Where no one likes to be told what they're doing is wrong or no one likes to be told what they're doing is sinful. When the church says things like like homosexuality is sin or when abortion is wrong, the world's response is to hate it. Hate it. because it is literally holding a mirror in front of its face, saying, look into this and you'll see who you really are. And again, we see that it is Jesus' words that are unacceptable for people. We live in a culture where some people like the idea of a sort of benevolent, kind, merciful, compassionate Jesus until they hear him speak. then they want to shut him up. As soon as we start hearing his words, that's when it becomes offensive. It's always going to be the words. Down in verse 14, when he arrives at this feast of booths, he began to immediately teach. And that's what generated the offense down in verse 19. It refers to the fact that they desired to kill him. Verse 20, they were saying that he's demonic. Did they say that because he fed 5,000 people? Did they say that because he healed people? Did he say that because he showed compassion and mercy and grace? No, they said that because of what he taught. It's always going to be the words. It's what he testifies about the world. And sometimes... We can look outside and see the world out there and think, yeah, well, we get that. We know why the world hates Jesus because of what he teaches. But what about us? Could it be that that we don't really like the words of Jesus either? Because the reality is we, we cannot point the finger at the outside world And say it's all out there, and it's all out there that's offensive, and they're all offended by Jesus' words, when the reality is that it seems like some of us are offended by Jesus' words also. Sometimes we like to bury our heads in the sand and and, and take pieces of Scripture that we like and enjoy and make us feel good, but we don't like the bits where Jesus challenges us. It makes us think about ourselves and it makes us think about the way that we are displaying Christ to the world and, and, and things like that. We don't like this. Take, for example, when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. And he says that to every single believer in this room this morning. Take up your cross. It's not a, if you're going to come after me, he says, take up your cross and follow me. It's not a, it's not a, a request. It's not a maybe. It's a command. take up your cross and follow me, means that we're willing to die to ourselves to follow Jesus. It's absolute surrender. Jesus said this, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit his very soul. How do we like those words? Like I say, it's all well and good, pointing the finger at the outside world and saying, look at those heathens out there, practicing homosexuality and advocating for abortion. Look at those heathens, when the reality is that in the church, we can't take the commands of Jesus seriously ourselves. And the reality is that our lives would show that we're not taking the commands of Jesus seriously. And I include myself in that. Very much so. The reason people hate Jesus is because he spoke against them. He testified about their deeds and their thoughts and their everything. And said they were evil. But let's not just point the finger at the outside world. Before we take a good look at ourselves. Next thing we see here is this. And this has always been the case. Is that opinion on Jesus is divided. It's divided. It always has been. It always will be. Look here at verse verse 14 through to 18. There's a lot of muttering and murmuring going on about who Jesus is. Some say he's a good man, some say he's a deceiver. Let me ask you a question. Some say he's a good man, some say he's a deceiver. Let me ask you a question. Which one of those is right? I don't really want you to answer because it's sort of like a trick question, but the answer is neither. Neither of those is right. At this point in in Jesus' life, there is so much confusion over who he is who he's claiming to be. Up until this point, the followers have went up and down, thousands to 11. They're all over the place. They just cannot decide who he is. They can't. There were some who liked the things that he taught, some who didn't like the things that he taught, some who who liked the things that he did, some who were confused by the things that he did. They were all over the shop when it came down. They didn't know what to believe. And it's exactly the same today. Opinion is divided. Some will say the same. Some will say that they would like parts of Jesus, but don't like other parts of Jesus. But here's the thing with Jesus. He doesn't give us the wriggle room. He doesn't give us wriggle room. He doesn't allow us to sit on the fence. It's either all in or all out. All in or all out. It cannot be a pick and mix type deal. The disciples that were now with Jesus, the 11, were going to have to make that call. They were going to have to decide whether they were all in or all out. And you can imagine them being here at this point. In John 7, the disciples are around Jesus and they're like, I don't know what we're doing here. I've given up so much. I don't know what we're at. We did have a great following. Now that's all gone. Is this right? Is it wrong? Who is this guy? But they were going to have to make a call. They were going to have to make a call. And so let's just look at what happens with them. The disciples that were with Jesus. Acts 1 verse 12. And they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away, meaning a very short distance. They entered the city. They went to the upper room where they were staying. That is Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the Zealot, Judas the son of James. That's 11 because Judas Iscariot is gone at this stage, obviously. These all with one mind, were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the woman and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And by the way, with what? His brothers. Who at this point in John 7 did not believe in Jesus. And here they are, believing in Jesus. They're all in. The 11, the woman, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, they are all in. What happened? What happened? Supposedly, there's about 120 in the upper room at this time. Why had they come to believe in Jesus? Why are they all in? Well, because by this time, obviously, the greatest sign of all had occurred, the resurrection. It was the resurrection that did it. It was the resurrection that convinced them. It was the resurrection that pointed to the fact that Jesus had defeated death once and for all, had rose from the grave, and has now ascended to the right hand of the Father. And they were in. They were all in. Let me ask you, as I ask myself, Are you all in on Jesus? Who is he to you? Is it take it or leave it? Is it I'll turn up on a Sunday and I'll do my thing and I'll sing my songs and I'll... Or are you all in on Jesus? say that he's a good man, like some people did in this passage, is not enough. To say that he's a good teacher is not enough. To say, as some people did in this passage, that he's a deceiver is a hellish thing to say. You will be held accountable and responsible for the answer that you give. Who is Jesus? What's the right answer? Well, Peter nails it. We believe that you're the Holy One of God, the Christ. My prayer for us this morning is that that would be our answer. That He is the Holy One of God, the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus concludes this section with a warning about judgment. Now, it's not a warning about judgment, about us being judged by him, but a warning about how we judge. A warning about how you and I judge. Jesus knows everything that is in man. He knows. This is a scary thing, right? This is a scary thing. This is a scary thought for me too because even I'm up here and I'm doing this, I'm still thinking things. I'm thinking things about you. But anyway, Jesus knows everything that is in man. He knows every single thought that you have now. Every single thing that's going on in your head, he sees, right? And he knows that we are predisposed, predisposed to judgment, We are predisposed to judgment. You are making judgments right now. And the way that you're making judgments right now is on what you see on the outward appearance. So, for example, Stonesy comes in looking like that. We make judgments on him based on that. And that's not fair but we do we make judgments on what we see and it's not right and Jesus says it's not right don't judge do not judge by by appearances he knows we're predisposed to it and he knows more often than not we'll look at the outside and base all of our opinions on that Calvin says this: "Judge not according to the appearance." Having concluded his defence, he likewise administers a reproof on this ground that they are carried away by wicked dispositions and do not form judgments according to the fact and the matter in hand. He says circumcision was properly held by them in reverence, and when it was performed on the Sabbath day, they knew it was the law, and it was not vi- they knew that the law was not violated by it. Because the works of God agree with each other. Why do they not arrive at the same conclusion as to the work of Christ? Because their minds are preoccupied by prejudice. Which they have formed against Jesus. Judgment therefore will never be right. Unless it is regulated by the truth and fact. We're the same. We form prejudices in our mind. We may not even be conscious of it, but we do. We form prejudices in our mind, and therefore we judge what we, what, we judge on what we see. And it's usually not right. It's usually not right. Sometimes it is, sometimes it's not. And here's the really I'm going to is the Tim Keller moment for me. This is the application point for this. You'll be amazed by my insight. You'll be overwhelmed by my philosophical deep thinking. Don't do it. That's it. Jesus says, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it either way because here's what we do. What we can do is look at people. We can look at some people and think they're super spiritual because either by the way they look or by the way they speak. Don't do it. Or we can look at some people and by the way they speak and by the way they look, we think they're not spiritual. Don't do it. Don't do it. Do not judge by the way things look. As we finish today, as we finish on this, Jesus, the reality is this. Jesus is the only one who judges perfectly. He's the only one. Because of the very fact that he does know what's in every single one of us. Knows what's in our minds, knows what's in our heart, knows our deepest motive. Knows, even though we we cover up our motives and say they're not our motives, he knows what they are. He knows you. He's the only one that can judge you perfectly. And the good news of the gospel is this. In knowing all of that, if you're in Christ, he looks at you and says you're forgiven. I don't know about you, but that is good news to me. That is good news. That is like the honey of the gospel. Is that he knows everything about you. And if you've come to him and said, listen, you've shown me who I am. I'm a sinner. I need to repent. I need to come to you in faith. Can you forgive me? The Bible tells me that he is faithful and just and he will forgive us our sin. End of. You're whiter than snow. If you're in Christ Jesus. Brief recap. Jesus is not interested in the crowds, but he loves the individual. He goes after the individual every single time. A crowd is no indicator of spiritual healthiness, spiritual faithfulness, spiritual success. The reason why the world hates Jesus is because he speaks against them and it is the same today. Opinion on Jesus has always been and will always be divided, but who do you say that he is? And do not judge on outward appearance because Jesus says not to. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word. We thank you that you are unbelievably explicit thankfully you haven't left things to our imagination you've been clear so many times and follow I pray through the, the help and comfort of the spirit this morning that you will speak to us and that you would help us love Jesus recognize Jesus for who he is We ask this in his beautiful name. Amen. And so as we we come to communion this morning, really by, by taking communion, by taking part in communion, you're answering the question, who is Jesus? If you take part in communion, you are saying, you are declaring, you are proclaiming that he is Lord, Savior, Messiah, and that he has given his life for you. His body has been broken for you. His blood has been shed for you. You're saying those things. You're declaring those things. And so if that's you this morning and you in good conscience can do that, then by all means, take communion this morning. But if you're not there and and you're unclear of who Jesus is in your mind and you're unclear of who Jesus is in your heart, then I I lovingly ask that you don't take communion this morning because you're proclaiming something that you don't believe in, that you're not there on. My only request to you is is genuinely this. Why are you not there yet? What's stopping you getting there? What is stopping you from saying Jesus is Messiah, Lord, Savior? Consider that. But lovingly, I ask that you don't take communion with us this morning. Let's worship.